This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. At The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey. That's Zach, that's Eric, that's Matt. And guys, we're digging into Nehemiah 3 today, which uh, we're just going to skip Nehemiah 3 because it's it's oh, lame and useless, yeah. and you're like it's just a bunch of names and you know talking about gates of poo or whatever the dung gate is or <laughs> something like that. And so, guys, I'm not being serious because there are different parts of the Bible, whether it's, you know, entire books like numbers or genealogies or, you know, chapter three of Nehemiah, where it's like, well, there's nothing here. This isn't as easy to read and pull stuff from as one of the Pauline letters or something like that. There is something here for you in Nehemiah three. And so Matt, uh, we were talking just off air a second ago about kind of Because again, you didn't come into Nehemiah like excited. You're like, oh, I guess Kyle wants to talk about Nehemiah. Let's talk about Nehemiah. And then you get to a chapter like chapter three and it's like you come off chapter two and there's so much happening. There's so much action. It's like an action movie that turns into like a study of how spreadsheets work. And it's just like it doesn't seem like there would be anything there, but you get a lot from this. Oh, for sure. And I think, and I didn't say this, but this just kind of popped into my head. So in life, you can you can put projects or, or tasks into three days. Day one, you're pumped. Like, hey, let's go. Everybody's, in, everybody's enthused. Everybody's jazzed. Everybody's excited. Day three, obviously, is the project is finished. But chapter three for me is day two. You're in the muck and the mire of the day-to-day grind. You don't get to skip day two because that's, a, that's often the most important part of the whole process. And it, it, it becomes this detailed account of what is going on. But like the reason that this is such an important part is that you see that real people are being put where they're at and they're being asked to build pretty much where they live. <laughs> like the wall backs up to their house. And so if they screw it up, like their house could be the first one that gets infiltrated and destroyed if somebody tries to get into the city. So it is. It is important for you to have buy-in, but it's important for you to have personal buy-in. I think that's a big part of, of chapter three. Yeah, yeah let me go ahead. I, let me just add a little bit to that. So we just talked about the gauntlet being thrown down, mm-hmm. right? Here we go. You have a leader that's, that's gotten everybody involved. And now for the rest of this chapter, he goes through and describes specifically this guy, his daughter, they did this, this person, his son, they did this, this was their home. Not only is he describing really great facts, which I think ground the Bible and show that it's so authentic, but he's giving homage to the people that he's leading yeah. specifically. Yeah. Also, we're building the wall here that down the road, Jesus is going to ride the donkey through on the East Gate. So let's put it in perspective what we're trying to accomplish. And I think yeah. there's a lot going on in this chapter. And I love this chapter yeah. for a lot of reasons. As a project planner type person, he's sitting here saying, man, look at this thing come together. Yeah. And he's so excited about it. And then we get to kind of read about it. So I, I think it's good to put yourself in that position and really think from what he's trying to write. Yeah. And talking about like chapters that maybe don't feel like they have as much meat to them. I mean, I remember several years ago, a guy named Donald Miller, he he wrote uh, blue like jazz. If you remember that long, long time ago, he's gone on to do other (laughs) things. But uh, I remember one time on his blog, he said something about like the the Bible and its it's practicality. Maybe it's, maybe some of it's, uh, maybe some of it's not as practical and there's certain aspects that you don't, you know, maybe don't need to, Take an account. I remember going, like, oh, whoa, 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 what? You know, I like, I really like that book and I really like your writing, but I don't agree with that. And so I remember I was like, you know what? I'm going to start January 1st. I'm going to read um, my Bible plan and I'm going to find something practical from every single day that I read. And you know what? I ended up in numbers and I ended up in this chapter and other chapters. And there was always something practical that I could take out of it, even if it felt dry. Um, and it was, that was kind of my, uh, you know, I don't know Don Miller. He doesn't know me, but it was just my challenge to myself to prove him wrong. There's not, not something practical that we can take from every single aspect, every, every single chapter of the Bible. Well, even, even look at this. So Zach, you mentioned homage, paying homage. So he's paying homage to people that are still alive while he's writing this. Right. And so if you think about it from a management or leadership standpoint, 
The people in your team need to be acknowledged for the things that they do. Now, people's mm. acknowledgement styles differ because I'm a guy that if I do something for you and you don't acknowledge it and say thank you, I'm going to want to kill you. Right. Like that's just kind of like I'm because I'm crazy. Like, but I also don't like heaping amounts of praise. So I need one little pat on the tushy, you know, flat hand, not cupped. And I need you to tell me, yeah, write it down. And it's like, just tell me once, hey, man, really nice job. I'm really glad you knocked that. You really knocked that out of the park. But if you're like, oh my gosh, Kyle, that is simply the greatest thing I've ever seen. You're the smartest, you're the best. And if you keep going and going and going, I'm just going to walk away while you're talking. I'm going to make it as (laughs) awkward as it could possibly be. So everyone's got their different style, but you're paying homage to these people that are so important to what you're doing. Because here's the other thing, and this kind of goes back to what you were talking about, Matt. He's paying the whole, the book of Nehemiah, like again, Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book and you know, someone later decided to name it Nehemiah or whatever. This could have all been about Nehemiah and how great Nehemiah is, but he is naming people and naming their claim to the thing that they were rebuilding. That's deeper than thank you. And I would like to thank the blah, blah, blah family for building the, you know, this gate and for putting up this, whatever, whatever. No, no, no. He's like, they are a part of God's work. And he's acknowledging that from the very beginning. I'd encourage you to go online and look at the videos of the wall now just to get a sense. Yeah, there's great ones on YouTube that you were This This work they're going through is no joke. And and we know what they're about to face. And he's given, I mean, literally it stood out like, I think there's a goldsmith and this guy and his daughter and they're just getting after it. You know, that's, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, what's interesting is he's, he's naming these folks that have done the work or are doing the work, but he also names the Tekoites. They're, they're nobles, he said, but they didn't put their shoulders to the word. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to call you out and your names are going to be in the Bible too. But their nobles their, would not stop well, to serve their there, Lord. There's, there's obviously people like, there's people that are, that are kind of waiting back. Like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to let this play out before I, you know, hitch, hitch my wagon to this. Maybe that's not the right word to use here. Hitch, unhitch. Um, Hi-oh. <laughs> but like, they're waiting to see where is this thing going before I, you know, maybe commit to this. So yeah, but I, that, I think that's just a a good life lesson that happens in every situation. There are people that sit back and go, "Ah, I don't know. And it speaks to the body, right? I mean, it took all of them independently doing their specific portion to make this thing happen. Yeah. I I think we'd be naive to, to think that all of these people got along too. So they're, they're the, the fact that they are united for this common purpose in a, I mean, just think of the, the people you go to work with, like you don't, they're not all of them are your best friends, but you're still, you know, accomplishing a job with them. If you work in a company where you're working with a lot of people. So like the fact that there is this common ground that Nehemiah, Nehemiah had pulled them all together. Like that's, that's some just amazing to think about. Yeah. One quick thing I heard, I'll never forget uh, something I heard in college, which was um, Napoleon said that his key to success is careful preparation followed by rapid execution. So in this case, mm. they, they didn't just mess around and plan forever and all that stuff. They got, they got the plan done. They figured it out. But when they got to business, they got to business. And yeah. I think it was 52 days is what they said it took yeah. to get this accomplished. I mean, record time. Can you say that again? The Napoleon's quote. It was careful preparation followed by rapid execution. Yeah, I like that. It's kind of, it's like uh, the prep that goes into like painting. Mm-hmm. You're going to put it, you've got to mask everything. It takes forever. It seems like, when are we going to get this done? And then the painting process is like that. When yeah. you, if you've done it right, it just kind of goes super quick, you know? When it's talking about, it's the payoff of preparation. Yeah. Because part of the problem that you have is if you don't prepare for a project. So if you think about it, like in a home improvement context and yes, again, guys, I'm not the, the most handy person in the world, but it's your level of preparation will lead to the level of ease you have during the process. Uh, now, when things happen during yeah. building, things just get messed up and you know, you don't have your tool or something breaks or like that stuff happens. But there are a lot of people, Eric, that they don't spend the time taping off the areas they need to tape off or covering the furniture and, and flooring. And they, then they go to paint and then they spill something or they make a mistake. Now they've got a second project, which is cleaning up the mess that they've made because their level of preparation was so low. And again, if you've seen anything from Nehemiah one and two is he was a prepared guy. He had his ducks in a row, which didn't mean that he didn't make mistakes or anything like that. But you know, the level of preparation led to his level of success and the rapidity with which they were able to get the project done. Well, there's a God thing too. I think Ben Franklin said haste makes waste, right? So later on in the chapters, some of these enemies and everything will look at it and say, well, even if a fox jumped on that, it would fall yeah. apart, you know, but there's, there's a God part of this. Cause in 52 days they made a wall that stood for a very long time. Yeah. I think you see the end product. You don't really know what goes into that. I think of Kobe, Kobe Bryant, you know, he shot uh, 60 shots a game, right? We'll, we'll just say, let's, let's just put it at 60 shots a game, but he was in the gym 
four hours before he was even required to be there by his team, shooting thousands of jump shots to shoot it maybe 50 to 60 times a game. Like you go and you go, oh man, it must be nice to have a silky smooth jump shot like that. And you're watching him, golly, yeah, yeah cool, must be cool. But you, you, you miss because you just don't, you don't know. Every day he's in the gym at three o'clock, four or five hours of just shooting the exact same shot. So that preparation is exactly why it looks so easy for him during the game. Well, that but, reminds me of, I remember, um, this was years ago when I, when I was working with Major League Baseball, but at the time there was a, a catcher. I wasn't a huge fan of him, but he was catcher for San Francisco Giants, Buster Posey, certainly one of the best catchers uh, of his era. And every baseball player, baseball player is a little quirky. You know, they have different drills, but the thing is, is there are a lot of players that are so unbelievably talented. They don't really work very hard. And then there are the guys that are unbelievably talented and they work hard. Yeah. And then you, you know, you get a, you know, Mike Trout or a, you know, Mickey Mantle or a Stan Musial. But Buster Posey, what he would do is if uh, you're familiar with baseball, you have your strike zone and that strike zone can be gridded out to nine different ball positions. So, you know, left, middle and right in the upper part of the strike zone, middle part of the strike zone, the bottom part of the strike zone. So what Buster Posey would do with his swing, he wanted to have a level swing where the, his bat head was in the, um, basically in the zone, the longest to be able to make the best contact. But what he would do is he would take a tee and he would set a ball up and he would set the ball up in each of those nine positions. And I think he would try to hit 10 balls directly up the middle of the field from all nine different places where the ball could possibly land. Now, if you're a hitter that's not a pull hitter and you play all the fields and, you know, which leads to better defensive alignments for, for you because you can spray the ball around, you can hit the ball out of the park, you know, to left center to right center, you know, from pole to pole. That was how he got his mechanism for keeping his swing tight. And so you see these things where maybe you've, it's, a, it's a shooter that, you know, his jump shot is just off for a long time. A hitter that's just off. A pitcher that's just off. A golfer whose swing is just off. A lot of those guys don't go to a new complicated form for how to fix what's going wrong. They go back to the basics. And the basics for Buster Posey was, I just had two bad games in a row. I'm going back to the tee and I'm going back to the nine grit, you know, the nine positions of the grit of the strike zone. And I'm just going to try to hit the ball up the middle. And you see guys that have that consistency of action. And I guess that, that, that the corollary here for Nehemiah would be there was consistency of effort and there had to have been to be able to get this work done in the short pe- time period that it came. It wasn't like these guys strengthened their hands for the work of the Lord and then took a whole bunch of breaks because, you know, things just kind of went awry. Like they were ready and they kind of stuck to the basics. Again, they were building walls. So that's, they're putting, stacking bricks on top of one another. Work. Like, yeah, it was, it was hard work. But to a degree, at that time, it was basic. To someone like me, like the thought of building a fence would be, you know, overwhelming. But like these guys are rebuilding walls and it's very, very complicated. But to them, it was just repetitive work and they just did it. They got after it. Yeah. And they, and, and they were extremely efficient, obviously. I, I, met, I met a guy just the other day. He looked like Santa Claus. But he, uh, he said, I, I just asked him, what have you been doing? Um, and he said, well, we, we actually did this. He showed me this video of this um, silo that they had put together he said we this guy bought these he was going to use them for this purpose and so he, he broke it down and we all um met at his place to to erect them and i said oh gosh what was that like a couple day project looked like a pretty stout project he's like oh well actually we got it done in four hours i was like wow how did you do that and so not to go into incredible detail but he's like well the interesting thing is you need a crane the crane lifts up the top and he, he said, just lift it up a little bit. And then uh, each of the panels or each of the kind of the wall sections have has like six of these panels that are curved. And he said, we had my wife on one side handing handing somebody a bolt, uh, another guy handing another guy a screw and the guy driving it. And we had this going all the way around. And he said that we all just worked together. Boom, 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 boom. And then we'd raise it up just a little bit higher, do the same thing. He said, we got it done in four hours. I was like, that is incredible. That is incredible. The efficiency, you know, that must have gone into this you know, had to be, be something like that. The efficient, the efficiency came from the plan, yeah. right? Exactly right. And yeah. so I guess that's a good corollary for this for, you know, how were all these people listed here? Just dozens and dozens of people able to do what they were doing. The other thing is they were working on different parts. Some people were working on gates. Some people were working on corners. Some people were working on walls. There had to have been people that were just gophers. Like they were going for this and going for that and taking it to the different people, but they, they knew how the plan worked together. So it wasn't like one family was working on the dung gate and the, I just keep going back to the dung gate because I think it's hilarious. <laughs> but like, and then another group was working on the wall because if they're not on the same page, 
when they when they come together, when their sections come together and your section's four inches higher than their section, now we've got a problem, right? You know, that's going to be, that's going to be something that a scout from a, a rival tribe or army or something like that, they're going to find that part of the wall and be like, there's where we're going to attack. That's where it's weakest. Like we can kind of get after it. And so they were all together in, 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 they were in unison while working separately. And you could probably see this the best and I know not a lot of people in our audience are, are huge soccer fans, but one, one of the things where, where I first noticed this, having not watched very much soccer, whenever I was in my 20s, my wife and I were overseas somewhere, and they do highlights for their sports shows very differently overseas, especially when they're looking at soccer or rugby or cricket or something like that. So over here, it's you're getting an entire three-hour game in 45 to 60 seconds. You're getting the home runs, you're getting the touchdowns, you're getting the big dunks, like that's all you're getting. But when they show soccer highlights over in Europe, they're showing you the buildup to the score. They're not showing you the last pass and then the score. They're showing you from where the offense of the other team was dispossessed of the ball and the 60 to 90 second, maybe two minute buildup that actually led to the goal. That's where you can see the fluidity of the motion of the planning of the structure of the offense of that team. Whereas if you're not a, you know, informed observer of soccer, you would look at that and be like, yeah, just a bunch of dudes that, you know, can't use their hands passing the ball from one another. And, you know, if they get bumped by the air, they, they roll around <laughs> on the ground and pretend like they've been shot by a sniper, but like you're getting to see the buildup. And Matt, it goes back to something we were talking about. It's like, you're giving your team, the each individual member of your team, the parameters of your yeah. offense and saying, be creative. Yeah. Here are the parameters, but be creative. Yeah. Like a coach comes up with a game plan. Nehemiah comes up with a game. There's structure. There's a system. There's a process, but each individual person has to do their own part, but they, they do it. They do it their way. Like they're doing them. And yeah, there's a, that's a great sports analogy. And my, you know, my best, the best teams that I played, I do like soccer and I played soccer, um, to a pretty good extent. Um, coach put a system in place, but then he trusted us to carry out that system, but also allowed us to be creative in how we did that. It's not robotic. It's, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I have some freedom to do what I, what I think or what I interact with or what comes across to be creative, to, to carry out that plan. And not do you, to do you centralize command, right? Right. You can, oh, you yeah, make decisions. decisions. Yep. You know, not to beat a dead horse, but you know, everybody's got to pull their weight. You know, one of the things I, I, I use in, in, as an analogy in my practice is I say, imagine a football team. Who are your best players on the football team? It's a quarterback, running back, wide receivers. I was like, oh, that's great. I was like, well, imagine your spine is like a team, okay? You've got X number of thoracic lumbar segments, whatever. Imagine like some of the, you know, imagine your linemen just said, hey, we're going to sit out this, we're going to sit out this series you guys are the best players on the team. You got this, right? How that would go. It would mm. not go well. Imagine even one or two of them doing that. I mean, it's not that you could not maybe pick up the slack a little bit and adjust and be creative or whatever, but we are meant to work as a team, just like the body of Christ, as we'd see in like 1 Corinthians 12, is meant to work and everybody do their part and do it well. So speaking of that, I want to read something real quick and then ask a question. So... Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. Mm. They built as far as the tower of the hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the tower of Hananel. So my question is, this is Nehemiah 3.1, the very first verse. What's the first gate that they built? The sheep gate. The sheep gate. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's a very astute point. So the sheep gate was the gate through which the animals were brought into the city, including the temple sacrifices. This gate reminds us of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who died for the sins of the world. And it's also it, the high priests, or the high priest and the priests are the one that built it. And the high priest and the yeah. priests are the ones that built it. But that's also interesting, too, because like you'd, you'd think of all the people that are exempt from building the wall, the high priest whose job is to go into the holies of holies, the holy of holies. Sorry, Joby. Um, <laughs> What's funny is I immediately thought of that. Um, Anytime anyone misspeaks, Joby um, Martin somewhere in Florida being like, these idiots, why didn't anyone go to Bible college? <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, they're, they're responsible for, you know, the, the, 
the spiritual welfare of the people. Like you'd think that, okay, yeah, if anybody's exempt, it's, it's the high priest, but no, he's in here. And that, that's a great, that's a great point. Well, it's Zach. not me, right? This is weird. No, study Bible. You're such um, a genius. Yeah, Zach. Yeah. Wow. You still, Joby will never yeah. be mad at you. Yeah. <laughs> he still brought it up though. So. But, but I will say, I mean, obviously Christ has not come on the scene yet. So this is why I love the Bible so much. It sort of self defends. Um, and the fact that you could read through something like we just set this up as being one of those chapters that it can be kind of difficult to get through. But as you dig deeper, it's incredible. So another thing that brings up for me, Zach, and again, I don't want to read too much. Is poeticism a word? Anyway, I'm, mm. I'm tagging it to myself. I just <laughs> trademarked it. I don't want to have any poeticism. It reminds me of Boondock Saints. What's the symbology there? Um, but <laughs> the word you're looking for is symbolism. Symbolism. Anyway, you guys shouldn't watch that movie. It's terrible. Um, but so... They're starting with the focus of sacrifice. Mm. So they're building a gate through which they will bring blood sacrifice. Mm. And just trying to really kind of figure this out before I kind of say it, but I, I, think, I think this is okay. If you were to describe Christianity or the Bible to a stranger, I think the first word you could use is sacrifice. Hey, can you explain to me what the gospel is? Sacrifice. So. Grace. It's the sacrifice of God giving his son to us so that we could even have grace. Yeah. And so grace is the foundation, or sorry, sacrifice is the foundation with which grace is built upon. And I think that that's very important that you start there, that there is a sacrificial element, but also these men of God, these high priests, they sacrificed their standing, I guess. They lowered themselves, as it were, yeah. a la what Jesus did, right. lowering himself as the ultimate high priest yeah. to be a man, a lowly man that had to travail and work and sweat and you know go to the bathroom and all those different things. And then everything else that, that came upon him, that was heaped upon him because God sent him for that express purpose. And so it's the sacrifice that they started with. And again, we don't know that that's the first thing that happened, but it's the first thing that Nehemiah mentions. Supported. And so, yeah. dude, but I've, I've never once even thought about that. Yeah, it's incredible. And, and then going back to just straight leadership tactics, right? The fact that he gets this thing cranked up, they start at this gate, and they've got the priest pitching in. They've got their little coalition built, right? And you can get momentum with that, with everybody yeah. watching. Yeah. And then it just goes from there. Yeah, and even just the order, I mean, the order of the way things were built, the temple was built first. And I just, yeah. I, I was thinking through that. I was like, well, I mean, you know, you think the, the the Ten Commandments, like what are the, what are the first three commandments about? They're about putting God first, and so building that temple before the walls, and all. I think there's something to be even said about that. In addition to what you just brought up here just moments ago. So I, I actually want to kind of go back a little bit to. I know we're we're using a lot of sports analogies with this particular thing, but I think there's something important here, Eric. When you were talking about the valuation of players, right? And so the the tradable sports cards that are the most valuable are the the quarterbacks and the wide receivers and you know every now and then you'll get a you know a a big time cornerback or, or middle linebacker or something like that but those are kind of the big guys in soccer it's your forwards it's your strikers it's i mean there weren't a whole lot of people like having big discussions about their favorite defenseman, you know, in, in the premier league or something like that. You know, that's what nerds would get down to. They get down to the actual level like, oh, this is my favorite defenseman. Um, but like the valuation of players. When we talk about the body, Zach, I think you were talking about this earlier. When we evaluate the body, we put different emphasis on sexier skills. Mm. And so the body needs a whole lot of different types of people in order to, or different types of things in order to operate optimally, right? The spine is pretty darn important, but so is Super. your pinky finger, right? Have you, like, if you've never jammed one of your fingers or toes, you have no idea how important that particular finger or toe is <laughs> until you don't have full use of it or painful use of it, right? True. But we put preachers and teachers and exhorters in this high level. Right. Those guys, they have the sexiest things The the worship leaders that, you know, maybe, maybe they're actual worship leaders in that they're actually Christians and they actually read the Bible and they want to have theological truths in the words that they sing. They don't just sing to Jesus like he's their boyfriend, but like, those are people that's like, oh, they're so amazing. Their voice is so good. Look how great they play the guitar. And like, this is amazing. Like they're just entranced by it. But then we don't think of the people that prepare the coffee in the same way. We don't think about the people that prepare the, that, that fill the baptismal up with water. Make sure the chairs are, are in the right place. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's a good time for us maybe even to pause and reflect on that. 
that regardless of what your skill set is, it is important to the body because the left guard is incredibly important to Trevor Lawrence's safety. He just is because if the left guard doesn't do his job, Trevor Lawrence could be smashed before the ball even gets to the linebacker before he takes his three, five, seven step drop to do anything that he needs to do. Like those are very, very important people to the overall offense. The same thing applies to the church. What's the common thread? What's the common thread there? Like it's all servanthood. The worship leader is serving. The pastor is serving. The guy who makes the coffee is serving. Like everybody is serving. And I think, just like everybody's building wall, like that's the common ground. And I, how, how audacious of us or how prideful of us to, to think, oh, I can't, I can't really, per, I can't really like do anything because I'm not a pastor. I'm not a worship leader. I'm not, you know, a, in a leadership role at the church. Like we're kind of diminishing God, aren't we? <laughs> like I, I'm just, I'm just a guy, man. You're a guy that needs to show up and serve, show up serve. Yeah, that's a good point. What what do you think is going on with somebody that may have this perspective that they're only watching the top guys or girl, you know, whatever? Probably the question that you should be asking yourself is how am I participating? Not what am I going to do any of that, just how am I participating? Because as soon as you're showing up to church or to whatever your situation is and you're having to put in some effort, you will very quickly begin to appreciate the coffee guy and the person taking out the trash person marching across the parking lot to make sure that everybody gets in safe all the way up to yeah. including the top dog. So if you don't yeah. appreciate what's being provided around you, the question I'd ask is how am I participating? Yeah. And I think, so there's a very important thing. I read a book uh, years ago. It was called outlaw platoon. And so this was about, you know, some stuff that was happening during the, the GWAT and um, you know, really, really terrible situation. A lot of guys died. And I remember something in that book when these guys come back from being outside the wire. They come back to base where these other soldiers were, you know, basically living in relative, they were certainly living in peace. They weren't in any danger where they were at, but they have Starbucks. They've got a gym. They've got AC that works. They've got hot showers. Oh wow! And you know, these guys came back from, they're covered in blood and sweat and human excrement. And they see all these people and they're the guys that just came back, they're in the back of the food line. And the author remembers being like, I, I could have killed everybody in there in that exact moment. I was so angry. And I remember talking about that with my uh, buddy, Eddie Penny, who was a SEAL, not just a SEAL. He was yeah. in SEAL Team 6, and he's, yeah. you know, he's been as, uh, as downrange as downrange gets. I remember talking to him about that, and he recalled a moment where he came back to, uh, th- it was Thanksgiving or, or Christmas. It was one of those. And he came back and the dinner that they provided on base, um, you know, here they are, they come back they're they're tired or whatever. And they just want to get some Turkey and some stuffing and some mashed potatoes and all that. By the time they got there, all these dudes that had just been sitting on base and in, re- in complete safety, they'd eaten everything. The only thing I was left was rolls. Ooh. And in that moment, those guys that had just gone down range and killed a bunch of terrorists and, you know, did the stuff that, you know, only they were equipped to do. He was very, very angry that he's sitting there eating, you know, stale rolls and he didn't get any turkey and all that. But he said, Kyle, later when I reflected on that, I kept thinking none of the stuff we did downrange was possible without those guys. Yep. Nothing. Yeah. So the armorer that never shoots the weapon outside the, the wire he made sure my weapon worked so that whenever yeah. I was pointing it at a terrorist, that it wasn't going to jam, it wasn't going to mess up. Because if it jammed and messed up, then maybe I die instead of him, right? And all these logistical people that are, they're ne- the, the most risk that they are at is whether or not their plane that lands them in Afghanistan is going to crash. Yeah. Like they're not, they're not having bullets whiz past their head. There are gradations to, to people's service and you know how much danger they were in but they're making it possible for those other people to do the things that they're doing. So all the stuff Nehemiah is doing as a governor of sorts in Jerusalem at the time would not have been possible without the 12 year old boys that were carrying bricks back and forth to the Masons that were getting the work done. So I know that it was kind of a long time to elucidate that, but it's so unbelievably important. There's two extremes there too, right? Like we can, we can think, Oh, I'm so low. I can't offer anything. But on the flip side, we can also think like you're describing with these stories of, you know, 
Navy SEALs, I can, I can prop myself up so high that I feel so entitled that when I, 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 man, I do this, why am I not getting this? I, that's not a good place to be either. So there's two extremes there. I so think. many eyes. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, exactly. It, it is interesting because there is a balance. I mean, we're obviously on a, a seal discussion here a little bit, but I go back to, um, if you're on a team from a leadership perspective, you don't necessarily want to be on the front or the back. You want to be able to have perspective of everything that's going on and you need everybody to be able to slot in and participate however they need to. Uh, but your leadership, you need to be involved frontline but but your team needs to understand that in order for them to be safe, you need to be you need to be detached and have perspective as well. So I think for me it goes back to do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? And you just have to look around and go, how can I make this the most effective? And that that and it encourages everybody to participate, right? And that's really what we're after. When I I also think that if we look at anything in history where great things were accomplished. So again, sports analogy, someone wins a Super Bowl, they win the World Series, um, you know, a mission is completed and you don't lose any of your guys. But as you were talking, I was thinking about the Sistine Chapel and the work of Michelangelo. And guys, if you haven't been to Rome, if you haven't been to Vatican City, like you need to spend some time in St. Peter's Basilica. You need to look at the Last Judgment. You need to go in there and you need to know what it smells like inside the Sistine Chapel. You need to look up and just see that. Do y'all think that Michelangelo built the scaffolding? Right. When he was painting. Right. Do you think he was getting up and down off the scaffolding to get his paint? Like, or was he focused on the work of creating perhaps the greatest piece of art that we still have in modernity? And again, Michelangelo is the name that we remember, the name of the painting and and the different details. Those are the things that we remember, but who made it possible? And then you've heard this. I don't even know if this story actually happened, but when that guy, I may have been, Kennedy that was getting a tour of NASA and he's, uh, you know, he sees a, a janitor, you know, sweeping up the floor and he asks the janitor, you know, Hey, what, what do you do here? He goes, I'm putting a man on the moon. And it's like, yeah, that's cute for like business school and all that, but it's a great lesson mm-hmm. to where it's like, what if they were at a filthy work environment at NASA and they literally like the engineers couldn't get any of their work done because there's coffee stains all over their workstations and everything's sticky and they're distracted mentally. They can't focus on the things that they need to focus on because they're dealing with all this other crap that they that is not their job. And so I think that that's important. Just again, anytime you look at something that is important and that has been done at a high level, a whole lot of hands went into that, not just the sexy hands. I think that also goes back to our, our identity. Where, where does our identity come from? Is our identity wrapped up in what we do on a day-to-day basis? I'm the janitor that only I just take out the trash or I just sweep and mop or is my identity in Christ? And I understand that what I do every day is not only in service to other people, but is in service to God. I talked to a guy a couple months ago who um, runs a pretty significant executive coaching firm. Uh, and and uh, startup business. So if you have a business and you're at a certain threshold, you can come to his group and they've got all these coaches and different people, right? And we were having lunch and, and he said, um, you know, Zach, one of the issues that we see with people who have been successful is they sell these companies and financially they're set. And then they go through significant depression. And so much of our programs are set on trying to help them understand what their next, you know, phase is. And it's just them attaching their identity to what they do. And I've seen, you know, myself, I've had experience with that as a younger person. I mean, it was a big deal when I had to figure out that this is not me. Yeah. I had somebody come in and say, you know, I don't work for this company. I work at this company for my family. And that was in a professional context. So we would, we would add to that and say, you know, I, I represent God and that's, that's what I attach my, my uh, worth to. And then everything else flows from that. Right now I'm remembering uh, Colossians 3, 22 and 23. It says, whatever you do, do it heartily, working heartily for God and not for man. And so there's the idea of who we're working for, as you just kind of mentioned, but also there's this idea that whatever we do, whether you're, you know, in the, in here, you're the perfumer or whether you're the the priest or whether you're a, a, a small child working alongside your, 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 your dad, <clears throat> whatever you do and do it well, you know, um, I, th- I think that's really important. I was, I'll, I'll, I want to share, um, from first Peter, uh, two, four, um, this, cause I was just thinking about like all the stones they were placing. And, and I was reminded of us as living stones. So let me read this and, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You 
also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And it goes on and talks more about the rejection of the of that stone and Jesus <clears throat> and that becoming the chief cornerstone. But I just thinking about like there, there was a very physical work going on here of them laying stones, but uh, practically speaking, we also are being built up, you know, not only individually through sanctification, but also as corporately through our church and through our, the fellowship that we have with one another to be able to accomplish God's work. Not because he needs us, but because he allows us to be a part of his grander story and commissions us um, to, to find joy um, in glorifying him through it. Eric, that's actually one of the things I wanted to talk about in preparation for Nehemiah 3 is you see this throughout the entire book of Ezra and Nehemiah, but certainly in uh, Nehemiah 1, 2, and 3 is God does his work through people. I think sometimes Christians think that they are just innocent bystanders or just spectators in what God is doing. And they treat it that way. And Matt, I don't know if you said it this one or on last week's episode where it's like, you know, God can move mountains, but he expects you to bring a shovel. Right. Like that type of attitude is important. And I feel like maybe I'm wrong. I'm curious how y'all feel about this. Most Christians are completely fine being a spectator mm. because they heard some dork in junior high say, let go and let God. And they're just like, that's how I'm going to operate from here on out forever. And it's like, I'm not going to actually do anything because God's going to do it. Like, what is my work compared to God? And it's like, you're asking the wrong question. The wrong question is, what is God going to do through you using your hands? We serve a God that hung the stars and literally created the earth but he loves us so much that he invites us to be a part of that plan and to be a part of that story, not as bystanders, like you're saying, but like active participants. The Bible is full of, it's all crooked pencils. I think, I think you use that, that a lot. Um, making straight lines. He's using crooked pencils to make straight lines, but the pencil still has to do the thing. Like, God's sovereignty does not mean that men are not active participants. And I, Nehemiah is, is a perfect example yeah, of that. Matt, one commentary I read called these people responsible human agents. Yeah. All three of those mm-hmm. words are very important. They're not just agents. They're human agents, mm-hmm. right? Because God has agency control over the whole of humanity. He can tell the rocks what to do. He can tell the wind what to do. He can tell the birds what to do. So he has agency. These are human agents that are responsible. They have responsibilities that require discipline to do the things that need to be done. And especially when we get into Nehemiah 4, like I'm just chomping at the bit to get into Nehemiah 4 because so many things in Nehemiah 4 seem, oh, very unchristlike and unchristlike and, and kind of mean. And why would they even need to do that? And, you know, I've heard people even say before, they're like, you know, you don't need to exercise. You don't need to take care of yourself. You've got Jesus. You don't need to get a vaccine. And no, I'm not talking about the vaccine. He's like, you don't need any vaccines because you have Jesus. And it's like, wait a minute. You know, I remember when, when Joby said something to me before, uh, and by the time y'all are hearing this, it will have been after my, my voice surgery. So we'll see how that goes. But he's like, Kyle, if you get this surgery, and your voice is better, and it's fixed and all that. 200 years ago, we would have called that a miracle. Now it's called a procedure, <laughs> but it's still a miracle. Yeah, yeah, like, it yeah. is a common grace that we have now. Surgery is a common grace. Like, I'm reading through a book right now that's going through some, you know, medical practices that were happening in the 16 and 1700s, Woo-wee. and it's like, I don't, I'm no glad I'm alive. Right? <laughs> People are like, is there an era you would want to go back and lift? No. Maybe to yesterday. I would want maybe, to go back to yesterday maybe, and maybe, like. Maybe 2019. Yeah, like <laughs> so, something what? like that. Maybe an era where it's still, where I still got an iPhone, but then I can kind of like time the market just a little bit. Yeah. No, I don't want to go back to Roman times to live. Yeah. I'd like to go down to visit, but then come back so I can eat food in air conditioning, right? And so, uh, but again, I don't want to get too far away from the point there. But again, th- there's a lot of agency responsibility there. There are two things at tension here. And I think a lot of people get hung up on. And I think, you know, you, you kind of speak to this. Um, I think, you know, people who would consider themselves Calvinists can really get hung up on this. But there's two tension throughout the entire Bible that God is sovereign and his will will be done no matter what. And that man is responsible. And I think we can swing the pendulum one way or the other. But I like what Spurgeon says on that. And I really liked your interview 
a few months ago with Joby where you asked him specifically about that. His response was great. Like these things are at tension, but they, they're both true and they don't contradict each other because they're both in the Bible. <laughs> like, so, and, and Nehemiah is probably one of, one of the greatest examples of that, of God's will is being done because God ordained it to be done. But also Nehemiah and all these people are active participants to carry that out because he's allowing that to happen. Yeah, and you might as well just get used to this because I, I can't imagine that we get to heaven and we just, I mean, I get it, we'll rest and we will have freedom from the, the, the temptation of sin and that sort of thing. But, but aren't we going to have, still have responsibilities? Aren't gonna we be doing still going to be working? You know, so, I mean, if you don't like to do it right now, you're not going to like heaven very much. <laughs> yeah. Well, we know how it's set up pre-fall, right? There, was, there were jobs to be done. Yeah. They weren't just idle or he, he wasn't, Adam wasn't. Um, you know, I, I guess just reading this a little bit, just to get into some of the details on it, uh, Wearsby does a good job, I think, trying to tie the gates and the different things into things that are relevant. And one here that I highlighted I thought was interesting is he says the refuse gate, I think you were talking a little bit about this, was located at the southernmost tip of the city near the pool of Siloam. It mm, was a, a nasty pool, I'm sure. It yeah. was a main exit to the valley of Hinnom, where the city disposed of its garbage. The Greek word Gehenna mm-hmm. refers to the valley of Hinnom, identifying this as the area that Jesus used as a picture of hell. Yeah. The sanitary disposal of the waste materials is essential to the health of a city, it reminds us that, like the city, each of us individually must get rid of whatever defiles us or it may destroy us. And it references 2 Corinthians 7, 1 and First John 1, 9. So in these words, it, this implies that, you know, we have some work to do along with God to identify those things. And I know in the last episode we talked about, you know, some of the things that we need to be working to rid ourselves of and, and all that. So um, I, I just wanted to kind of pull in some of the specifics that they're talking about here. There's a lot of different um, gates and, and different things I know you could gloss over, but I think there's, there's plenty of ties to, to dig into. Well, and right after that, in uh, verses 15, 16, talks about the king's garden. Um, and uh, I just thought it was interesting. I was reading a quote, a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It was actually part of his sermon. It just as a side note, there were um, six different gardens of the king. There was the Garden of Eden. There was the Garden of Gethsemane. There was the Garden Tomb. There was the human heart, the church as a whole, and then ultimately the garden of paradise in heaven. Uh, so just, again, try, trying to tie back a little bit to, to Ezra 3. Good old Calvinist spurge. Why are you looking at me? Why, why do you say that and then look at me? Because the problem is, is all these dang reform nerds are going to be like, oh, I could ask Kyle some questions. It's like, I don't want to answer your questions, okay? I got things I got to do. The, the thing that I feel like is important in all of this as well and, and maybe this is an overarching point, maybe as we, re- we wrap to a close here on Nehemiah 3, is that humans don't give themselves enough, they don't think about their own responsibility enough, mm-hmm. I feel like. And man, I saw a video the other day, and it's a video that I've seen before, but there was a woman that had, I think, 10 kids, and like eight of them were living with her in like a hotel room or something like that. Mm-hmm. And she's like, someone's got to take care of these kids. Look at all these kids I got, and somebody better take care of them. And I'm just thinking to myself, you and the multiple baby daddies, that's who. But we've, we've been lulled to sleep in modernity that we, <laughs> we make the bed, but we don't have to lie in it, right? Uncle Sam's going to take care of it. Local government's going to take care of it. You know, some ministry or whatever is going to take pity on us and those types of things. And if that is seeping out of your normal life, it's going to seep into all the most important areas of your life, so raising of children, having your job yeah. and, and creating things for society. Cause again, point to any societal ill, right? Any single one that we have today. Think of your favorite one guys got it in your brain. Great. You can point to a lot of things. And if you were to only do a univariate analysis, you can say father's not being in the home, you know, kids not being educated. Father's not being in the home. Kids joining gangs. Father's not being in the home. Kids being violent, kids getting pregnant, kids getting other people pregnant at a young age, like murders, rapes, fathers not being in the home. Yep. But we love to point to everything else. Uh, and we don't live in a shame culture anymore. That's one thing I'm reading a book right now. And, you know, uh, depending on the timing, I may have already interviewed this person, but it's like the history of abortion in America from like the 1600s to today. It's a 500 page book and it is a whirlwind. 
But they're talking about like back in the day, you know, this was, I guess, fairly common that women would be hesitant to sleep with a man unless they were married, obviously, or unless they promised to be married. And so you would have these men that would say, let's have sex and, you know, I, we're going to get married, right? And then when you know it, they would do that and then they would renege on that. Shut. And if the girl got pregnant, they would super renege on that or something. However, the communities, if they found out that a man slept with a woman and impregnated her or just slept with her in general, the community would say, you're going to wife her. That's what you're going to mm-hmm. do. You're going to marry her. You made a decision. This is, so that's where the whole concept of a shotgun wedding. But in that time, they didn't even need the shotgun because the shame that came from the community was so much scarier than the potential of the, the girl's dad putting a shotgun in your back and marching you down the aisle. I think that speaks to community. Like what we are built to be in community and have that accountability. We're called to be where our feet are. And if I, if I sin and have sex with someone outside of God's ordained plan, which is marriage, Okay, be where your feet are. Step up, show up, be a man, and 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 like carry out the call that you that you have. Like it's it it's not always I'm called to go save th- ten thousand people. I'm called to do this. I'm called to do that. I'm called to serve my wife and my two kids. And I don't always get that right, but that's my calling, and that's where I've got to be. I know you've got your laptop open. I'm going to do something. Hey, you know what? <laughs> two, it's two just, I'm, we can't we'll really see pounding. the timer. So for anybody, I think the yeah, camera I'm, actually I'm, turned off. Yeah, but I'm yeah. Struggling. So, so here's the two things. The first one is, I don't know if you saw Ray Comfort posted a recent video and he said, I thought this is interesting. If you get in a car accident with a pregnant person, the baby dies, it's manslaughter, right? You can be charged with double murder in right. some states yeah, there you go. or okay. double vehicular uh, murder yeah. or homicide. Okay. So you, you could, you could walk down that path. I just didn't know if you'd seen that. These are, these are two comments that I read that probably hit me the hardest um, in all of this study, so I just thought I'd throw these out there for everybody to look at. In 329, these are the comments about 329. The East Gate led directly to the temple and is probably what we know today as the Golden Gate. Tradition says that Jesus entered the temple on Palm Sunday through this gate. In the 16th century, the gate was sealed with blocks of stone by the Turkish Sultan uh, Suleiman the Magnificent. Jewish and Christian tradition both connect the Golden Gate with the coming of the Messiah to Jerusalem and the Muslims associate it with the future judgment. Last part. Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord depart from the temple at the East Gate, and the Lord will return to the city the same way. Mm. So you have every reason to associate this gate with Christ's return and to remind yourself to abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So for me, a couple of quick highlights would just be, go look at the videos. You can see this. If you want to get a sense of how real this is, it says, this is where the glory of God exited. This is where Christ is coming back specifically. And that last sentence about, we don't want to be ashamed when he comes back. If you feel like you're living in some unrepented sin, or you've got some issues that are going on, get that cleaned up. And if you need help, get it. I think it's it's a tremendous point. I will say last night before we recorded the sec, you sent a message to all of us with two different videos. One was a, a 3D rendering of the city, and then there was another one that was kind of like a historical retelling of kind of what was happening in that area. And some of you guys like the maps in your Bible. Well, there are things that you can get because, you know, we wonder about the the size of certain things mm-hmm. and how that is in reference to whatever. And if you've never been to Israel, it's kind of hard to kind of understand. We, we think of Jerusalem as way bigger than it actually is because right. we've never actually been there and seen it. But it does give you an idea, the scope of the work, but also... Again, as we've mentioned, if you're reading the Bible as if all of this points to the narrative of Christ, that points to the gospel, then the mentioning of the sheep gate first, as you just taught all of us at this table and a lot of people in the audience, that is not insignificant. That's also not by happenstance, and that's also not by accident. Another text that you sent to everybody last night is you're going through the the Action Bible with your son, yep. and wouldn't you know it, you turn the page last night before you come in here to to do this recording to Ezra, which is the setup for Nehemiah, which is you know, setting up things in history that point to the gospel. And I said kind of tongue in cheek, yeah, must have been a coincidence. Like that is just, just, just so happened to be the next thing that you and your son were going over. And so there's certainly, we don't live in a world full of coincidences. Not everything that ever happens in history points to God, but this is something that it's like, we clearly see things that are pointing to, to God and his redemptive story in humanity. So guys, hopefully that has been a, a good, you know, 
understanding of Nehemiah 3 to where there is enough that you can glean from this. You may need help from commentaries. You may need help from the Holy Spirit just telling you, hey, there's something here. Don't skip this browning. It's what you were talking about earlier. Like, hey, there's got to be an application here that I have to find. It's just not going to be readily apparent. It's not going to jump out and smack me in the face. But we're going to just have to leave that there for now. But come back next Sunday where we are going to dig into Nehemiah 4. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I'm so excited to dig into Nehemiah 4. Like that is worth the price of admission for the entire book of Nehemiah. But make sure you read Nehemiah 4 before you come here next week. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. And just like every week, the only link there is a donation link. Guys, in order to pull off the stuff that we need to pull off, we need your help. We do get a little bit of money from from sponsorships and different things like that, but it is don't donations that allows us to do all the work that we're doing to equip men around the globe to push back darkness. So hop on board. We have one-time givers. We have a bunch of monthly givers. And just as a quick aside, I used to send emails to all you guys thanking you every single month that you did your donation, whether it was 10 bucks or hundred bucks or 500 bucks or whatever. And I, it's kind of become too cumbersome for me to do that. But just know that I am not any less thankful for every single one of you guys, because that is money you could have spent on you. You could have spent it on your wife. You could have spent it on your kids. You could have spent it on any number of things, but you chose to sacrifice that to give it to us so that we can equip men again around the globe to be able to push back darkness. So we're so thankful for you guys, but we need more guys just like you go to undaunted dot life backslash donate or click on the link in the description. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>